Romans 7, 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a woman married, a married woman, is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the Word of God. Let's pray as God speaks to us this morning. Father, we ask that you would speak to us indeed, that you would help me to preach your word with clarity, that I would preach your truths and not merely my own thoughts and ideas. I pray that you would open us up, that you would shape our hearts and form us to look like Jesus this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. All right, so I want to preach to you this morning on this text, and on the title, Remarried to Jesus. Remarried to Jesus. Now, as we get into it, let's begin with somewhat of an analogy to understand what's going on here in Romans 7, 1 through 6. In John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, meets a man named the Interpreter. And the Interpreter takes Christian into a room, and the room is old and dusty. It hasn't been swept in many years. It's never been cleaned, actually. It's just filthy. The Interpreter asks a man standing by who has a broom to begin sweeping. And the sweeper begins to sweep, and as the sweeper sweeps, the dust rises up and swirls around in the air, and Christian, our main character, starts choking on, on the dust and can't breathe. And then the interpreter tells the sweeper to, to stop, and he tells a, a girl who's sitting there to go get some water, and she comes in with the water, and she sprinkles the whole room with water, and then she cleans the room up with pleasure. Christian looks at the interpreter and he says, what does this mean? And the interpreter says this. He says, the room or the parlor is the heart of a man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions which have defiled the whole man. He who began to sweep at first is the law. But she that brought water is the gospel. 
And when the gospel comes in its sweet and gracious influences to the heart, so is sin vanquished and subdued, and the soul made clean through faith and fit for the, glory, uh, for the king of glory to inhabit. I wonder if any of you have been trying to sweep up your life with the law. I wonder if you've come in with the broom of the law, just God's requirements, or maybe your own requirements, your own expectations, or the expectations of other people that have been put on you, and you're trying to add up, you're trying to achieve, you're trying to become something with law. And you're sweeping this old room out, filled with all of the original sin and the corruption of your life, and it's not working. The more you sweep and try to clean out your room, the more you choke on the dust of sin. The more sin stings your eyes and you discover that this thing, which we are going to call law this morning, is not producing holiness. I want us to come to the sweet grace of the gospel this morning and to see that the gospel the gospel does something entirely different in a human being than law can ever do. The gospel takes us from one state to another state. And this is what Paul has been talking about through Romans, especially as we get into Romans 6, and Paul starts to talk about the difference of being in Adam versus being in Christ, united with Christ, a complete change of transformation. Spurgeon put it this way. He says, the heart is like a dark cellar full of lizards and cockroaches and beetles and all kinds of reptiles and insects, which in the dark we see not. But the law takes down the shutters and lets the light in so that we can see the evil. Thus, sin becoming apparent by the law, it is written the, uh, it is written the law, the law is written so that it makes the offense to abound. Meaning some strange language there. But what he's saying is, is, have you discovered that the more rules you follow, the more corruption there is in your life? The law doesn't bring salvation. The law shows us the dust, the vile nature, the lizards, the cockroaches of our hearts. So, chapter 7 then begins, I mean, we've, we've had these antagonistic questions. Chapter 6, verse 1, if you remember, should we go on uh, sinning so that grace may abound? Certainly not. Verse 15, uh, since we're, we're no longer under the law, should we go on sinning? No, we should not. And he's, he's answering these questions not with willpower, not with our personal strength and ability, but by saying that you are united with Christ. That theme continues into chapter 7. But now he's going to really hone in on this question of the law. What about the law? And chapter 7 really is the most famous chapter on law and grace. And it's also one of the most difficult chapters Paul ever wrote. One theologian said that Paul nowhere else wrote something so difficult, confusing, and complex. However, it's not just difficult. It's an incredible expedition as we begin to, to, to walk with Paul on this journey, beginning to discover 
not only some theoretical or theological idea that we're released from the law, but as we begin to discover our, our power in obedience, that God, through the gospel, empowers us in a way that the law never could. So let's, let's walk through it. Chapter 7, verse 1, what about the law? The law of God. Now, the law uh, for the Jews was perfect. The Bible itself tells us that God's law is perfect. And so this would be confusing to the Jews. You know, for the Jews, their, their, the law was their entire way of life. It was, uh, it, was their, it was what defined them as a people group. And so to, the, to then say that we're not under the law is surprising. And what he goes on to say as he explains it is even more jarring. What he goes on to tell them is that we, as a people, not just the Jews, but as a human race, have died through Christ to the law. Marriage, union with the law. And we are raised, remarried to Jesus. Now, if that seems strange, let's just walk through it together. Verse 1, look at verse 1. He says, do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who, are, uh, who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, this just makes sense. If, if you steal a car and you tragically get into a car accident shortly thereafter, you're not going to get tried for grand theft. You are no longer bound by the law. You're dead. You're no longer under the curse of that law. So a law is binding on an individual as long as you are alive. When you die, your sentence comes to an end. And this is important for us because the law is binding on us and there's no way that we could ever uh, uh, accomplish the, the demands and the requirements of the law. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, just a few chapters earlier, it says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So what we've discovered is that under the law, none of us can escape the wrath of God. To change the analogy a little bit here, if we can imagine the law as water, uh, it would probably look like the Atlantic Ocean. And our ability to accomplish the law would be like me swimming in the Atlantic Ocean trying to cross it. How well am I going to do? I'm going to be overwhelmed by the demands of the ocean. I mean, the ocean is beautiful, don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with the ocean. But you plop me into it, and those waves of condemnation will crush me, and I will drown under the weight of the Atlantic. Under the law, we are pierced for our transgressions. We are crushed for our iniquities. And so what's, what's Paul getting at? He's saying this broad statement. The law is binding only as long as you are alive, all right? Explain this to me, Paul. He gives us an analogy. Are you tracking with me? Look at verse 2 and 3. Here's the analogy. 
He says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law. And if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. It's a simple analogy. God designed marriage to be a lifelong commitment. And, uh, you know, man cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And what he's simply saying is that if a wife in this situation leaves her husband and goes with another man, she is committing adultery because she is bound to her husband. If you're married, say amen. This shouldn't be all that debatable. However, here's where the analogy helps us as it relates to the law. There does come an end to marriage. And that end is with death. Look at verse 3. While he is alive, he says. But if her husband dies, he says. So our marriage covenant ends with our physical death. Whenever I perform a wedding ceremony, I use the traditional vows which say, I will be faithful to you alone until we are separated by death. I remember years ago, I was marrying some friends of mine, and they were so much in love, and they wanted to change the vows, and they wanted the vows to say, I will be faithful to you and to you alone forever. And so we were sitting in my office talking about this, and I was like, we can't, we can't, we can't do that. And it was, it was, this was tough. There were tears in the room as they considered the reality that death ends their marriage. And it's tough. I get it. You know, my wife has told me that if I die before her, she wants to cremate me. I don't care what you think about cremation. That's not the point. She wants to cremate me and put me on the mantle and keep me. And I was like, Jess, when I die, you are freed from me, <laughs> all right? When I die, like, don't put that on your, hu- your next husband. You know how awkward it's going to be if he's going ha- to have to say, hey, could you mind if I, like, dump the remains? You know, like, <laughs> let's just mourn my death and you're freed from, from this covenant, And it's tough for lovers because, you know, we're all romantic. But the point is this, is that marriage does end with death, all right? And that's the point he's trying to make here. The the law of marriage is binding on us as long as our spouse is alive. So if this woman in this, you know, in this imaginary state goes and sleeps with another man while her husband's alive, she's an adulteress. But if he dies, she is freed from that covenant. Verse 4, likewise. So what he's doing here is he's connecting this analogy with this, with this theological teaching on law and, and grace. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died through the body of Christ. We died through the body of Christ. Listen, Jesus had to die 
because the curse of the law is death. And so Jesus died then as our representative, which means he made us present at the cross in his death. Jesus had to die in a vicarious nature, which means he died in our place. Jesus had to die in a substitutional sort of way, which means that, that, that our condemnation, the wrath that I deserve, was taken by him as the substitutional lamb. Jesus had to die. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was uh, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So let's follow the logic here. In Adam, we are married to the law. In Adam, we have union with the law. In Adam, therefore, we have no life. We have only condemnation. In Adam, we only have death. In our flesh, we have no acceptance. We have no qualification. And some of you walk every day according to the law, always beat down by the things you did not do, by the things you should have done, uh, by, by, by the things that you did do that you should not have done. Walking around with guilt and shame in our flesh, in Adam, that was our state. But what Paul is saying is that the law is binding on us only as long as we are alive. But when Jesus died, I died. When I survey the wondrous cross, I survey my own funeral. And I see the funeral for all of my brothers and sisters in Christ. In Christ, we died. Now, in the same way that death ends a marital law on earth, in the same way our death with Christ means that we legally died to the demands of the law and we can now legally be remarried to Christ. Look at verse 4. We're remarried to Christ. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. I'm going to keep it simple this morning. Two lessons for us. Since we are remarried to Christ, two lessons for us. Number one, since we're remarried to Christ, we belong to another. Remarriage to Christ changes our belonging. We used to belong to the law. Now, when we think of law here, I, I don't think we should simply and merely think of the Mosaic law. Meaning, I don't think we're, he's just talking to Jews. You know, the, the, the Bible tells us that the law is so much more than just simply these these rules of the Mosaic law. It's not as if Jesus dies to free us from a bunch of rituals so that we might actually now live according to the law. No, we are freed from the whole system of law. Any law. 
The laws that we have for ourselves, the moral law of God and the laws that others put on us, we are freed from evaluating ourselves based on our performances. We are freed from the justice of the law. We're freed from the demands of the law. And in a very biblical sense, we are freed ultimately from the curse of the law, which we are all under. Well, you might say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I've been pretty obedient. Well, James chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And the result of law-breaking is stated in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, which reads, you shall surely die. Listen, nobody who's a human being born into this world is free from law. We're all under law. God's law, as well as all of the various application of man's laws, as well as the standards that we put on ourselves, whether it's religion or whether it's our own personal expectations and goals, I believe that we are all legalists. Everybody say legalists. We are legalists by nature. A legalist, meaning legal, law. Ist, a worldview. Our worldview is based on this list of standards and expectations that we ought to live by. I believe that everybody's a legalist by nature. Now, some in a more re religious sort of sense. You might think of re legalistic Christians as those who look at the outward appearances and, and uh, evaluate themselves based on the external. Or you might think of the Judaizers who Paul deals, deals with who evaluate themselves based on Jewish traditions. Or you might think of other religions with their own codes of conduct that we must live by. But even in society, even outside of religion, I believe that we are all legalists by nature. Meaning the moralist evaluates themselves based on how good they think their morals are. The secularist evaluates himself based on inclusion and tolerance. The activist evaluates herself based on social causes. The achiever evaluates themselves based on the successes that they can accomplish in life. My, my simple point is that we all have our standards. And we never add up. Why? Well, I don't know if you've ever noticed this in life, but your standards, even for yourself, always change. Like, you think that when I achieve X, Y, and Z, that I'll feel a sense of stability, or I'll, I'll feel like I've accomplished something, like, I, like I've arrived, like I can rest. And what happens? You achieve X, Y, and Z, and you get there, and you realize, oh, I still want to, now I need to achieve A, B, and C. There's no rest for the legalist. It all leads to our destruction. It all leads to our decay. It all leads to the fingers of condemnation, whether that's someone else, whether we feel like that's someone else, or whether it's our own standard and our own finger condemning us. Ultimately, I believe it's this. Ultimately, I believe that every human being in some fashion knows 
that they are guilty before God. And so we are constantly working against that guilt and that shame. We're dead to the law. The old marriage that we had with law has come to an end with our death in Jesus Christ. You know how people talk about toxic relationships? You got people jumping from one relationship to another talking about toxic relationships, and all the while they're really in this toxic relationship married to the law. It's the most toxic. Why? Because you can never add up. You can never achieve enough. You can never accomplish enough. It only serves to condemn you. But check it out, church, the dominant analogy that we have with, uh, uh, regarding our relationship with Jesus Christ is also marriage. All through the Bible, we see marriage used as an analogy of what God is doing with His people to the point where we get to the climax of it in the New Testament and the church, us, we are called the bride. And Jesus is called the groom. To the point where at the end of the Bible, we get there and we, what we see is a wedding. We see that the groom has finally like beautified the bride, sanctified the bride with his own blood, and the groom is now coming to, to take his bride. And heaven is pictured as a, as a marriage, as, as a feast. What a wonderful picture for, mar- uh, for, for heaven. This is our relationship with Jesus Christ. What we're told here in verse 4 is that since we have died to our marriage to the law, we belong, somebody say belong, belong. we belong to another. In his commentary on Romans 6, James Montgomery Boyce imagines vows between the church sinners and Christ, the groom. Let me read them for you. I, Jesus, take thee, sinner, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God, the Heavenly Father, to be thy loving and faithful Savior in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health for this life and for all of eternity. And in his imagination, the church looks into the loving face of its groom and repeats after the minister, I, sinner, take thee, Jesus, to be my loving bridegroom and Savior. I do promise and covenant before God, the Heavenly Father, to be thy loving and faithful wife in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, for this life and for all eternity. Remarried to Jesus. But wait, somebody says, wait a second, hold up. Won't this marriage end at death? Oh, look at verse 4. He says, we belong to another, to him, to Jesus, who has been raised from the dead. Will Jesus ever die again? Is it possible for our groom to die Is it possible for us to die again after we've been raised with Jesus Christ? No. Hope of the resurrection. What that means is that we have the confidence that this covenant 
of marriage with Jesus will never come to an end. But wait a second, somebody else might say, if this is like a marriage, won't it end if I break my vows? Church, you will break your vows. These vows are not contingent on your ability to keep them. You will break your vows. But don't you recall his vows? Oh, I will be their savior. Our, 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 our hope that we have in this marriage is not based on us, but it's based on the savior. With this marriage analogy, Boyce asks a series of questions. He says, suppose my love grows weak. Oh, don't say suppose. Your love will grow weak. Not only will grow, your love for Jesus is weak. My love for Jesus is weak. I, I love him so poorly. My love for Jesus is, is tainted with so much sin. But his love, church, is stable. It's a consuming presence. It's unchangeable. It's based on his own immutable nature, his unchangeable nature. His love for us is absolutely pure. Our marriage to Jesus is not based on the quality of my love for him, but it's based on the quality of his love for me. His love for me is like an oak tree. Whereas my love for him is like, as Richard Sib says, a bruised reed. Now, we don't look to ourselves. We look to Christ. What if my love grows cold? The bride asks. Your love will grow cold. The old patterns of sin, your old habits, your old nature at times will overwhelm you. At times, you'll fall back into these old patterns of sin. At times, you will just be overwhelmed with the stresses of life, and you'll forget God, and you'll forget Jesus, and you'll just be so frustrated with what's in front of you. But Jesus never stops seeking us. Jesus never ceases to pursue us. He chases us. His love never fails, and He never fails to woo us back to Him. But suppose I betray Him as Gomer betrayed Hosea. Well, even if I betray Him, He died to deliver me from the law. Will he abandon me now? Listen, the Father gave us to the Son, and the Son died for those who the Father gave him. And then the Son sent the Holy Spirit to fill us and regenerate us and seal us and preserve us until that final day when Jesus gives us back to the Father and the Father gives us back to the Son. We're caught up in the love of God. Oh, this is why Jesus says nobody will pluck any of us out of the hand of the Father. In Christ, our love is secure. In Christ, our love is powerful. It is real. Why? We don't belong to the law, church. We belong to Christ. Are you with me? 
2 Timothy 2.13. Listen to this. This is, this is just unbelievable. Listen to this. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot disown Himself. My salvation with Christ, my marriage with Christ is not based on my faithfulness. It's based on His. All right, so what does this mean then? I mean, this is all about obedience and sanctification, isn't it? Like, aren't we dealing with, in chapter 6, should we go on in sin? Uh, Verse 1, should we continue in sin? Verse 15, we're dealing with this question of how do Christians become good? How do Christians become more like Jesus? How do Christians not take advantage of God's grace and just go on in sin? Well, this is the second point. Our remarriage to Jesus, first point, changes our belonging. Second point, our remarriage to Jesus changes our fruitfulness. It changes our fruitfulness, our obedience. How? Well, it's not law. Listen, we don't go back to the law for our sanctification. It's not as if we are justified by faith and then sanctified by law. And this is what legalists want to try to present you. I've literally had people argue this uh, and, and, and say, look, I, I understand you give them the gospel, but after you give them the gospel, you've got to take them back to the law, give them the command so that they can grow. Gospel plus our own sort of pick ourselves up by our bootstrap sanctification. Well, that's not what the text teaches. Verse 4 says, you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. You see, our remarriage to Jesus, no longer being under the law, is actually where we find obedience. It's where we find fruitfulness. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He says, Paul is trying to show us that sanctification by the law is as impossible as was justification by the law. Or if we go back to our Pilgrim's Progress analogy. So often, uh, after the gospel comes in and waters down the room and sweeps up the room, Christians want to give the broom back to the law to continue sweeping it up. But no, it's, the, our, our relationship with the law is, is forever changed. The water of the gospel is where we live. Look at verse 4, so that we may bear fruit for God. And then in verse 5 and 6, Paul contrasts the fruit of marriage to law versus the fruit of our marriage with Jesus. So look at verse 5, he says, for while we were living in the flesh, he's, he's hearkening back to those days when we were in Adam. While you were in Adam, while you were living according to the law, What did your life look like? While you were a legalist, what did your life look like? While you were trying to achieve something based on your own abilities, was it characterized by godliness? Was it characterized by holiness? The answer, of course, is no. Experientially, for all of us in the room, I would imagine. He continues. He says, Instead of holiness, our sinful passions 
aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's break this down. In verse 5, he says, our sinful passions were at work in our members. Meaning, when you give a sinner the law, sinful passions get to work. What does that mean? Well, he says the law actually held us captive. That word captive means to prevent. It prevented holiness. Instead of creating holiness in it, it kept us from holiness. Not because the law was problematic, but because our sinful passions are problematic. Can I give you an example of this? In my house, it's generally my job to take the trash out at night. And often, the situation looks something like this. It's about 9 p.m., I'm in the kitchen, I'm about to take the trash out, and I hear my wife call from the second floor, Joel, take the trash out. Just walk away from it. I was about to, until law came. You see, it, it goes to work in our sinful passion, or sinful passions go to work in our members. Law incites rebellion. That's me in my flesh, isn't it? That's not me in Christ. That's me acting according to the old man. We rebel against law. Someone said they get their kids to eat broccoli through telling the kids they're not allowed to eat broccoli, and it's the only thing that makes them want to eat broccoli. Law incites rebellion in the sinner. Paul goes on in the next verse. We'll look at this next uh, in two weeks. He says, we didn't know we wanted to covet until we were told not to covet. To give you another example of this, it's been statistically proven that teens which receive abstinence, sexual abstinence, abstinence education alone throughout the nation, this is a secular study, it's not looking at the church, teens that receive abstinence education are more likely to become pregnant than teens which don't receive abstinence education. Now, I'm not against abstinence education. It's biblical. Save your sex till marriage. But any system which believes that teaching morals is going to create moral people is actually law. And all it's going to do is incite rebellion. And we can look at the statistics and see that. Listen, even as we, as we think of our kids, we need to stop turning to the religion of moralism to become our kid's savior, but rather we have to understand that the savior is our kid's savior because the law doesn't do anything for them. The law doesn't do anything for you. The law doesn't do anything for me as it relates to producing holiness. Only the Savior can do that. So back to verse 6. He says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that, here's the ap application, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. 
Meaning it is impossible to swim across the Atlantic Ocean in my own resources. But we serve in the new way of the Spirit. What, what we understand this to be is that the Spirit writes the law on our hearts, no longer simply written on stone, but the Spirit changes us. You see, the old way of the law is to try to make yourself obey some kind of written code that you don't want to obey. But the new way of the Spirit is to have your desires change. And all of a sudden, you begin to want to obey and serve God. If I could use addiction as an analogy, it's often said in addiction counseling, quote, they don't want it. They're not ready yet. Well, what does that mean? It means that even in society, we understand that you've got to want something. You've got to want sobriety more than you want your drug. And if all we say is don't do drugs, that incites rebellion. What we need is Christ. We need the change of the Holy Spirit. And this is what happens when we are reborn. The Holy Spirit moves into our life, takes up residence, writes, rewrites uh, the, the, the hard drive of our heart, gives us new desires, and we actually would rather cut off our hand or pluck out our eye than turn away from Jesus. We want Jesus more than anything. And I'm not saying that, the, the, that our passions aren't conflicted in us. They are. But sanctification happens when you want to follow Jesus more than you want to follow your sinful passions. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm happy to be remarried to Jesus. I'm happy to be in union with Christ and not in union with the law that could not save. In the book Endurance, it's about uh, these 27 men who are stranded in Antarctica. And these men are taking two small boat, boats across Antarctica's Weddell Sea. And as they're on the sea, they're facing these tremendous storms and freezing water that that keeps splashing through the waves into the boat. And as the water fills the boat, the boats begin to sink. And these men are frantically with buckets trying to keep the water on the outside of the boat as opposed to coming inside the boat. As long as the water stays out there, they're okay. But as the water comes in here, no bueno. This is how we are under the law. Our boats are constantly breaking up by the constant crushing of the law's waves. The deadly guilt of sin crashes down around us. We are never good enough. We are never adding up. We are never affirmed. We are never qualified. And our boats sink with the weight of that law. I saw a, one of these goofy inspirational TikTok videos which sometimes makes good preaching material. And it said this, it says, ships don't sink because of the water around them. 
ships sink because the water gets inside them. How many of you understand that there can be a, a raging sea all around us and we can float atop? The raging sea of the law, the beauty of it, the glory of it, yet no longer sunk by it, no longer under it. Why? Because I'm no longer swimming according to my own strength and according to my own resources. How many of us are happy that we are in Christ, dead to the law, married to Christ? We are in a ship called Jesus Christ. And in that ship, the waves will never conquer it. In that ship, there is warmth. In that ship, there is safety. In that ship, there is salvation. In that ship, there is life. And in that ship, we serve God. We serve God. Freed from the performance-based review of the law. And freed to serve God with grace. Freed, no longer drowning according to the old ways of the written law, but serving in the new ways of the Spirit. Are you in Christ? Church, there's going to be a wedding someday. Are you prepared for that day? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this sermon. We thank you for this word. We thank you, God, that, uh, that your word speaks to us. We pray, God, that you would strengthen us and encourage us as we apply these things to our hearts, as we know that we are freed from the tyranny of the law, living in the grace of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.